Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. The FT. On the show this week, tensions between Iran and the West are building as the EU prepares to impose an oil embargo on Tehran over its nuclear program. They know very well that the sanctions will hurt and will hurt a lot. And so they've been pretty frantic. They've made all sorts of threats. They've been flexing their muscle in, with military exercises. They've even sent warnings to their neighbors. In Nigeria, the government has climbed down from its attempt to remove a costly oil subsidy. The price of petrol jumped 120%, um, and that had a knock-on effect. Uh, everything from sachets of water sold on the streets to food, everything went up, uh, sometimes doubling or even tripling. You're listening to World Weekly with me, Sean Donnan, the FT's world news editor. First, Iran. Tensions with Tehran have been building since an International Atomic Energy Agency report late last year raised suspicions about the country's nuclear program. In its wake, the U.S. imposed sanctions on Iran's central bank, and the EU is poised in the coming days to impose its own sanctions on Iranian oil. Iran has responded by threatening to disrupt oil shipments through the Straits of Hormuz. All of this has created uncertainty on the oil markets and raised fears of a military conflict in the Gulf. Joining me in the studio to discuss this are Javier Blas, the FT's commodities editor, Rula Halaf, the FT's Middle East editor, and James Blitz, who is the FT's diplomatic editor. Let's start with you, Rula. Why don't you just walk us through uh, where Iran is going, where the rhetoric is going to uh, out of Iran. We've heard a few noises about international negotiations, uh, but I'm curious to see where you think they're taking this. Well, as uh, as always, when diplomatic pressure intensifies, the Iranians have suggested that they want to return to the negotiations. But this um, request has been dismissed by uh, Western governments because they don't think that Iran is is serious at this point. Obviously, if you're Iran and you've got scientists being assassinated, you've got uh, an attempt to choke off your, your lifeline, then you're not in a very good situation right now. And while usually the Iranian reaction to sanctions is, we don't care, these sanctions won't be effective, I think this time, they know very well that the sanctions will hurt and will hurt a lot. And so they've been pretty frantic. They've made all sorts of threats. They've been flexing their muscle in, with military exercises. They've even sent warnings to their neighbors in the Gulf um, to say, you know, do not promise to make up any shortfall in, in Iranian oil. So the tensions are essentially at a very high level. But I think it's very important to also note that while Iranians know that they're vulnerable on the economic side, they're not feeling weak. And they see their opponents, particularly the U.S., as being in a potentially weaker 
spot because of the global economic crisis, because of the wars in, in Afghanistan and in Iraq, well, because of the failures. Let's build on that point a little bit later when we bring in Javier and James. But I'm interested also, you talked about the domestic weakness and the weakness in the economy and the fact that these sanctions are going to hurt this time around or are already starting to hurt. Uh, what are we seeing well, we're seeing the currency losing well, against the dollar about 40% since December. Uh, we're seeing inflation at around 40%. There's already youth unemployment of about 50%. So clearly, there are a lot of economic problems that are the result of both sanctions and mismanagement by the government. And these economic problems are getting worse by the day. And we've got parliamentary elections coming in March that are very important, and so pol political pressure ap applying there as well. Yes, absolutely. I think, you know, the economic situation is going to play into the March elections, and that's a major concern from the allies of Mahmoud Ahmadinejad, the president, who are hoping to be able to um, to make significant gains in these elections. Now, all of that economic background in uh, domestically, a lot of that depends on the income from oil. Uh, Javier, just walk us through why the Straits of Hormuz are so important. Well, the Strait of Hormuz is the most important point for uh, the, the oil traffic. Uh, it's the point that is used to uh, navigate around a third of global oil supplies, and it accounts for almost every drop of oil that is produced, not only in Iran, but also in Iraq, Kuwait, Qatar, and crucially, Saudi Arabia, that is the world's largest oil oil producer. If the Strait of Hormuz goes to be shut down, that is a, a threat that Iran has made, although um, military observers and, uh, and oil analysts are, are very skeptical that Iran will, will take that step, uh, oil prices could go anywhere. It will be a crisis of similar magnitude to 73, 74, and um, the um, consensus on the market is that oil prices could go anywhere between 150 and 250 dollars. That will be, that will mean a economic catastrophe not only for Europe and the United States, but probably also for emerging countries such as uh, China and India. So, in general, the global community have an interest to keep the Strait of Hormuz open uh, to the oil traffic. Uh, we are going to get a, an EU oil embargo that is going to be agreed on uh, early next week, the uh, 23rd, and that is going to go through to uh, to a summit later this uh, this month on the 30th, the European Leaders' Summit. How is that going to come into place, and what is the likelihood that Iran can find other uh, places to sell its oil? Well, altogether, uh, if you take uh, the European embargo, that the details are still being iron or uh, iron, but. Um, it more more or less we know that it's going to be in place probably around July and you add into that the US sanctions on the on the central bank of Iran that they are aiming to the, the trade of oil we think that uh, around 700,000 barrels a day of oil are going to be disrupted Iran usually exports about 2.4 million barrels a day of oil so it's a significant part of Iranian oil export are going to be disrupted they are going to need to find a home for that oil until now, the consensus in the industry, until very recently, the consensus in the industry was that uh, the Iranians will be able to sell it. But now the magnitude of oil that we are talking means that even if the Chinese uh, play a friendly game with the Iranians and take some of the oil, uh, 700,000 barrels a day is too much. So the Iranians could find themselves in a situation by mid the year that they need to start uh, storing oil, in, probably in super tankers in the Gulf, and at some point, they will be uh, very likely forced to shut down production. And that means a, a, a massive loss of revenues and, and economic damage for, for Iran, and at the same time will put pressure on, on oil prices. 
James, there seems to be an increasing air of inevitability about these European uh, sanctions the or European oil embargo. When we were talking about this before Christmas, we, we still thought of this as kind of an unprecedented step, but now it seems to be ex- broadly accepted. Uh, what else is happening on, on the diplomatic front in terms of resolving the nuclear issue? Uh, is, are we going to see any sanctions beyond this embargo? Well, on the diplomatic front, we heard Ali Akbar Salahi, the Iranian foreign minister, earlier this week talk, saying that some discussion was happening about talks behind the scenes. But the view in Western capitals and Brussels in particular, which is sort of spearheads these talks, is absolutely nothing is happening. So in that sense, uh, the, uh, th- there's nothing to expect. I-, I think as you look forward, I think the question is, how are these scenarios going to play out? I think that is a question that, that, that people are wondering now. Um, I mean, the main preoccupation at the moment is clearly what's happening in the Straits of Hormuz, and the question there is whether the Iranians might block the strait. Uh, there, I think, the uh, the assumption in Western capitals is it's pretty unlikely for a number of reasons. First of all, they would block their own exports from happening, so it's highly unlikely they're going to go down that road. Secondly, if they were to block the strait, the U.S. would automatically respond, made it very clear by trying to reopen it, and the Iranians would almost certainly lose a conventional battle at sea. They simply don't have the assets to maintain that. I think the thing that is happening beyond that is the, the question about where is all this leading in terms of the Iranian nuclear program, because what you've been seeing over the past few weeks and months, from, as Muda said, the IAEA report in November and then the decision by the Iranians to enrich at Qom is that the Iranians are taking significant steps. And, and the question is, how long do Israel and the United States have before they go down the road of uh, military action? So what's the road out of this? I mean, we've got a crisis. We've got building pressure uh, on the economic front, in the oil markets, domestically, uh, in, in Iran, both uh, economically uh, and politically. Where do we go to from here? Rula? Well, I don't think that you're going to get um, negotiations with Iran unless you're now willing to make a more realistic offer. Um, and, I mean, to my mind at a time when the tensions are probably at their highest since 2003, um, it's worth, and given the stakes, and, you know, there's sort of this ineptability that we're going we're gonna to end up, this crisis is going to end up in, in a war that could be <clears throat> extremely devastating. Um, it seems to me that it's, it's worth trying to, to have negotiations one, one more time. And the, the format for those negotiations, so the form for those negotiations, is this something that we look at at the United Nations? Is this? No, I mean, I think what is, you know, the way that when you have a crisis of the sort, the way that you go towards negotiations, you have to have very quiet negotiations first. Um, and what you need is for the Americans and the Iranians to be having to be having contact. And it is possible that the Iranians, that this is something that the Iranians are, are pointing to or trying to achieve um, at this point. It's, it's difficult to tell. James? Well, I think as you look at various scenarios, one of three things is clearly going to happen. Either Iran is going to get a nuclear weapon or Iran's program is going to be bombed. Or the third thing is going to happen, which is that the mixture of sanctions, which we currently have, of sabotage of the program, which we haven't mentioned, which is also attracting a lot of interest, and also diplomacy is going to bring the the entire story to a satisfactory, peaceful conclusion. Now, as far as I can see on that third one, it's looking pretty grim now because you've got a major assault happening on sanctions, 
it is not at the moment seeing any signs of the Iranians buckling. I don't think in the US and Western capitals there's a feeling that there's much more they can offer the Iranians. They've already been down a significant number of talks. And sabotage, although it's interesting, is not basically arresting the programme. My own view is we are entering a, a situation where the area of discussion now and the fulcrum of the story is the different views in Israel and the United States over how long there is, with the US taking the view that there's still a fair bit of time, the Iranians are still some way from being able to test a weapon, and the Israelis increasingly believing that 2012 is the year of decision. That is where the area of discussion is. What are we going to see in the oil markets? Well, uh, oil traders are very concerned of two aspects. One is that both James and, and Rula are talking is how both sides of the equation are seem very confident on the situation. The Iranians seem very confident that at the very last minute the United States and Europeans will back down on the sanctions because it's going to trigger economic damage through very high oil prices. And at the same time, uh, it seems uh, a view that the Western powers are very confident that at the very last minute the Iranians are going to also back down and agree to negotiation and agree to renounce to the nuclear program. The oil market is, is concerned that both sides are so confident on their position that they are heading to, to conflict. The other big concern is that military conflict could happen used by, by chance. There are so, mass, so many military assets in and around the Strait of Hormuz that the potential for uh, just a mistake happening, yeah. a miscalculation for one of the two sides, we have seen during the, the, the tanker war in 84, 87, how a uh, U.S. frigate uh, shut down um, a, a civilian airliner from, from Iran, just mistaking that, that uh, Boeing plane for uh, uh, an incoming missile. We have seen also accidents where a, a U.S. nuclear submarine emerged from water and hit a, 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 a vessel that it was on the surface. So the, the potential for a mistake that suddenly escalates and we end on a, on a military conflict is very great at the moment. And that probably is the biggest concern of the oil market, that this deteriorates on a full-scale military conflict just because um, something happened on the Strait of Hormuz. Well, there's no doubt that this is an issue that's going to dominate or take up a big part of our attention through 2012. Thanks very much. Let's move to Nigeria, where the government has reversed a decision to remove oil subsidies after a nationwide strike paralyzed the country uh, and threatened the country's oil production. Here to discuss what this means for Nigeria's president, good luck, Jonathan, and for the country's economy, particularly its oil industry, are William Wallace, the FT's Africa editor, and Zan Rice, the FT's West Africa correspondent who's down the line from Lagos. Uh, why don't we start with you, Zan, and why don't you just tell us uh, how Good Luck Jonathan is emerging from this? Well, he certainly lost uh, um, some of the goodwill he had after after his election last year. Many people see the way he handled the, the removal of the fuel subsidy as a as a betrayal. Um, it, it came up quite suddenly on on the people, and they certainly weren't expecting petrol prices to increase by so much, um, if at all. Um, so he certainly lost some of his standing, and his there's real pressure on the government now to um, look into some of the demands uh, of the protesters, particularly around oil sector corruption um, uh, and government government expenditure. And there's already some 
some interesting revelations coming out in, in, in Parliament, um, in the National Assembly, about what's, what's been going on with the subsidy. Why don't we just step back a little bit? Why don't you just walk us through uh, why subsidies have been uh, such a prickly issue for so long in Nigeria? Uh, perhaps, William, do you want to uh, kick off on that? Well, the subsidy was actually introduced, uh, I think, 38 years ago. So it's been something that that's, uh, the government has been paying for for a very long time. Lots of different governments, both military and civilian, have tried to either completely remove it or, or thought about it, or, or they've partially removed it because the cost is so high. Um, it's it, it, last year the cost went up to eight billion dollars, or probably more, in fact, uh, something like ten billion dollars, uh, and that represented a doubling from 2010. And the uh, the reason for this is not the cost of the subsidy itself, but because uh, oil marketers. Uh, officials and other middlemen make a lot of money from the whole business. Uh, and so it's estimated that something, even as much as half of the cost of subsidy is going in uh, different forms of corruption and waste, and also in, in smuggling to neighbouring countries, because Nigeria's petrol price is much lower than neighbouring countries, so people can make a fortune by selling it over the border um, once they've got the subsidy at, at a higher price. What was the immediate impact uh, when Goodluck Jonathan lifted the, the, the subsidies and what, what did we see prices do? Well, the, the, the immediate impact um, was the price of petrol jumped 120% from about 65 naira a litre, which is about 40 US cents, to 141 naira a litre. Um, and that had a knock-on effect, uh, everything from sachets of water sold on the streets to food, um, to, to transport fares, everything went up, uh, sometimes doubling or even tripling. So it was really hitting everybody in the pocket, um, even those who don't drive cars and don't, don't have to fill up their cars. Many of them use petrol generators um, because petrol have, have been so cheap historically. So just the cost of keeping the lights on in the house went up so much. And, and I mean, that's important because Nigeria's power sector is, is so poor that... Um, you know, there, there isn't electricity for a lot of the time, so people have to have generators. So, so the effect was 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 pretty severe. And that's where this this thing got interesting, isn't it? Because we had an, an effect on the pocketbook of the everyday Nigerian at the same time, a real sense of injustice uh, and a recognition uh, that this was not a clean part of the of of, of the government's budget. Yeah, I, I mean, I think that there are two sides to this whole subsidy debate. One is that it, it's an extremely inefficient way of spending government money, and government could spend that uh, huge amount of money in much more effective ways, even in, in poverty alleviation and stuff. Uh, it's also, the, the subsidy has also distorted the whole fuel market. It's made, uh, it, it's, it's, uh, it, it's, um, it's dissuaded people from investing in the refineries, so Nigeria doesn't uh, uh, is unable to refine the huge amounts of crude oil it produces, and created this huge lucrative opportunity for importers. Um, all that said, um, because you have had a cheap petrol price for so long, uh, Nigerians expect that, and they don't expect to have to pay more and, unless they've got a government that's also delivering in our other areas. And, and where this government failed, I think, is to persuade Nigerians that they are going to improve service delivery in other areas and improve livelihoods in other areas to compensate for the rise in the petrol price. Now, Zan, you were saying that in Parliament we've already seen some 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 revelations come out uh, on on the nature of, of of the subsidy business and some of the corruption around that. Do you want to just walk us through what we're learning? Yeah, I mean, what we learned yesterday was that um, I think nearly nearly half of the 
of the petrol that was actually imported last year was was above what is consumed normally in Nigeria. Um, so the government's spending an incredible amount. I think it was 677 million, um, a billion naira, which basically half the subsidy um, went on fuel, which is not even normally consumed in Nigeria, which means that it's going to neighbouring countries or being lost in other ways. Um, so that's that's just one element of it. Um, and people are demanding a full investigation of, of, of this type of thing and also of the independent oil marketers. People want some transparency. Who are these people? How much money have they been paid? All that type of thing. And is there any sign that the government is going to act on those um, those demands? Well, it's, it's, it's very early. I mean, these, these hearings are taking place and the Petroleum Minister has announced that there will be a comprehensive review of all um, of all sectors, of all the oil sectors, but especially the, the import sector, um, and that uh, an audit report by the accountants KPMG, which was conducted in 2010 and never acted on, is a pretty damning report. That will now be investigated. Um, I think the problem is at the stage these, these kind of things have been promised before, um, and until there's, there's concrete action um, in the form of, of government officials being um, being suspended or fired and, and legal action taken against um some of the business partners, people will, um, yeah, people people won't believe that that anything is really going to happen. I, I think there's an there's an additional complication for the government, which is that the, there are strong reasons to suspect that some of the money that was diverted from the subsidy went into election campaigning last year and, and may have contributed to financing the ruling party's election victories. So some of the findings of these investigations, if they're properly carried out, could be very embarrassing for President Jonathan. So what is this going to mean for Jonathan as, as we go into the, the, the coming months? Well, I think if President Jonathan is actually serious about transforming Nigeria, as he promised in last year's election campaigns, if he's serious about reform, one thing he does have now is a huge public constituency demanding more accountable and efficient government, the thing that he says he also wants. So he he does have public backing now for, for real reform. Uh, the thing is that he's been weakened greatly by by this contest, and the subsidy and downstream fuel deregulation are an important reform that needs to take place at some stage. Whether he can push these through, whether he has the capacity to rally all the different interest groups and, and segments of society in order to push through reform and keep the public with him is another question. He's shown himself to be weak. Is that? Yeah, I think, I think those... Those are the main points. I mean, his aim was to get rid of the subsidy, and that's the only way in which they're going to attract private investment in the refineries in Nigeria. He's failed in that sense. Um, he's not going to be able to attract investment while there's still a subsidy, even if, it's, even if it's a smaller subsidy than before. So at some stage, the subsidy is going to have to go. And given the opposition he faced this time, I think it's quite fair to expect there will be similar, if not greater, um, opposition when he tries to do that. So that's a real challenge. Um, and he's also promised to reform the power sector, and, and there, there's strong vested interests there as well. Um, and subsidies, which which need to, well, the subsidisation uh, of the of the state provider, um, that needs to go, which is going to push power prices up as well, which is going to going to create more discontent. So I think there's some real challenges ahead. Certainly are. Thanks very much. And that's it for this week. My thanks to Javier Blas, James Blitz, Rilla Halaf, and William Wallace here in London, and down the line from Lagos, Zan Rice. We'll be back next week with more from our network of illustrious correspondents. I'm Sean Donnan.
For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts.